It's the future. It's where we're going. I suspect whether we like it or not, that's where we're going. It's space. Welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb, and we're here today with a guest, our senior space and science correspondent, my brother, Danny <laughs> Robb. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Danny is a history teacher. His expertise is in the history of science. We did a two-part podcast last summer that dealt with his thesis that we can use the lessons from the public-private partnerships of the age of exploration in order to create policies that will sustain space exploration into the future. So if you missed those podcasts, you can go back and check them out. They're titled uh, History and Future of Space Exploration, Parts 1 and 2. On today's episode, I just want to revisit a couple of those themes that came up in those podcasts, uh, get some updates on on space policy, and also talk about the current state of scientific thinking in our society today. So the first question um, is, what's the point of space exploration, I guess, on the practical level? I think people tend to be skeptical of investing public funds on, on space exploration because we have so many problems here on Earth, poverty, addiction, we need health care, infrastructure. Uh, I think everyone loves the fact that we you know went to the moon and we celebrate our astronauts and our, our discoveries, but uh, in terms of investments now, it's, it's, it's hard to argue that that should be a priority. So, so what is that why for you? Why, why explore space? Yeah, so if you ask a million different people why we should go to space, you're going to get a million different answers. And um, half of those answers are going to be that we shouldn't. <laughs> um, and so if you ask like the scientists at NASA, one of the primary things that a scientist is interested in in space is um, can we find life out there, either by listening or by investigating the nearby planets. But that's not a very convincing argument to most people. Most people don't necessarily care, and whether or not they should care is a whole different discussion. But you're right that it seems like the practical aspect is what people are most concerned about. Um, and you mentioned like a, a litany of problems that we have at home, yeah. and that sort of seems to be the fundamental discussion. Should we go to space, or should we solve problems at home? Mm -hmm. And um, my like vision of of space is sort of informed by um, Carl Sagan, who I mm -hmm. think is a voice that is desperately missed these days. And in his book, The Pale Blue Dot, he asked the question, um, are those problems that we have at home uh, something that should keep us from going, or are they a reason for us to go to space? And I think that when you look at almost all of those problems, they are a reason to go, that it's not a either or it question that we can do both and that going to space can potentially help us solve a lot of problems at home. How though? So we're, you know, we've got X amount of money, say billion dollars. Uh, we could spend that on healthcare. We could spend that building roads uh, for people. We could spend it on education. Um, how, how is spending that on uh, space gonna, gonna possibly help with those things? Well, I kind of disagree with the foundation of the question mm -hmm. because that's not exactly how our, our, our budgeting works. Mm -hmm. And and so we can do multiple things at, at the same time. And that going to space can assist in solving those other problems 
through two things. One is, is um, kind of intangible, and one is very tangible. The first is um, providing a sort of unifying force for people. Um, now, the International Space Station, I think, is, is one of the most profound achievements of um, the 21st century. It's been flying for almost 20 years now, and it is a international partnership that started as a partnership between two of the world's biggest rivals. And while space could be a um, grounds for competition and conflict, it could potentially also unify people within countries or unify countries um, together as an international community. With a lot of our other problems, um, particularly things like climate change, the technologies that we, and, and healthcare even, the technologies that we gain from space exploration um, can transform um, industries at home dramatically, and they have already. A lot of the um, healthcare innovations that we've seen have come out of, of the Apollo era and the shuttle era and the experimentations that have been done in microgravity. Um, solar panel technology was um, advanced rapidly due to the need to provide power in space. Um, I think that a lot of the conversation about why we go up to, why should we go to space gets wrapped up in climate change. Mm -hmm. um, on one side, you might have people saying, well, we've got to focus on preventing climate change here. Oh. We've got to focus on the Earth, on monitoring the Earth. And then you have some people saying, well, what if the Earth um, becomes less habitable? Right. Maybe we need to go to Mars for a backup. Uh -huh. And that seems to be the way that the conversation is framed right now. Do we focus on Earth or do we try to develop a backup system? But, again, I don't think that the conversation necessarily needs to go that way. Um, it can be both. That by so, so by somehow using the science that would help us either survive in space or go further in space, those, those products and technology might also simultaneously help us make discoveries that, that could make our own planet uh, more... Sustainable as well? Almost certainly. One of the primary disagreements that happens between people who are interested in space is, um, is colonizing Mars worth it or sending people to Mars worth it? And the counter argument a lot of the times is, well, we need to, if Mars is so uninhabitable and we need to develop so many technologies in order to live there, well, why don't we just develop technologies to live here on Earth? And I think that's a really good point. But I think that the best way to develop those technologies before we need them is to test them and investigate those types of technologies in inhospitable environments. Yeah. That's where innovation flourishes, is when you are presented with an immediate challenge. And it's also where, um, it's also where the unknown unknowns lie because a lot of the technologies and scientific discoveries that have been made through space exploration, things that have contributed to widely used technologies today, happened because of unexpected discoveries or unexpected con conditions yeah. encountered in space. Can you think of any, just off the top of your head, any examples of, of 
that kind of serendipitous discovery that have been helpful. We um, necessarily, we're necessarily looking to solve this problem. We're necessarily looking to, to develop this technology, but kind of accidentally or through the, you know, our I can process. think of, I, I can kind of think of two areas where, where this has been the most helpful. Um, first is actually in our understanding of the climate on Earth itself. We didn't know a whole lot about the atmosphere of, of Venus. And early robotic explorations of, of Venus led to a much deeper understanding of the climate here on Earth. And a lot of the um, kind of early days of talking about climate change in the 60s and 70s started to become very much informed by the planetary history of Venus. And we didn't expect necessarily Mm. that learning more about Venus would help us understand the Earth better, but it did. Mm. Um, and it transformed our understanding of, of atmospheric composition and, yeah. and how that affects climate. Yeah. Um, the second is... is um, so satellite communication technology obviously would not have happened, and I think that people forget how pervasive satellite communication technology yeah, is like today. Part of pretty much all of our... I mean, all of our, all of our digital... Tools, are, yeah. yeah. I mean, so a lot of our communication does rely on like undersea cables and things, uh, but it, a lot of it happens um, through satellites. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest <clears throat> uses of satellite communication is actually the tracking of industrial equipment, and um, there's this kind of foundational industrial side of communication through space that a lot of people aren't aren't even aware of or mm -hmm. sort of the foundations of our infrastructure yeah um require space how far are we away from being able to go to mars um <laughs> <laughs> that is a really tough question um what do you mean by we like we as a human species or uh, like you and me no not 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 me and you i mean just you know, like we put a man on the moon, right? Yep. I think that the the obvious next next step, if we're if we're going to make a next step, is is going to Mars. Is, mm -hmm. is that, I mean, is that a, a moonshot type new moonshot type possibility within the next ten twenty years? This is something that I've been thinking a lot about, and that and my estimates have become more and more unclear because it depends on a whole lot of variables. Uh -huh. From um, policy making to um, markets to global, like political events, yeah, and so, which is kind of how he went to the moon in the first place. Is yeah, this, this competition, this desire to to one up Soviet Union and 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 to prove that we're so awesome. But that's kind of what uh, you know. It's kind of what Trump's whole you know just the his whole space force thing. And I think it gets. It gets kind of made fun of a little bit because it's Trump, and people are automatically think it's stupid, but it's Trump. But you know, I think it kind of reminds me a little bit of of Ronald Reagan's idea of you know he loved the idea of satellite missile defense. Yeah, and it wasn't taken very seriously at the time, and people like say, oh, this is just his Star Wars idea and sci-fi, whatever. But it seems like in hindsight, a highly developed missile defense system would be very valuable right now, and and we're not completely there, and I. I think the idea of space force is kind of like 
almost like a militarization or, or to make sure that we've got defenses in space or like other countries are going to space and we need to like get on top of it so we can so it's kind of like yeah. confrontational instead of like unifying like it could be um but um yeah, I, I, I have know. a couple We're, thoughts on, yeah. on on that direction for the future of space uh-huh. because that is something that is now part of the part of the conversation uh-huh. because of space force, and there's a lot of like misunderstanding about that stuff that goes yeah. on. Yeah, so talk um, about that for a little bit. So first off, um, there's actually a relatively strong argument to be made against developing missile defense programs, mm-hmm. in that it could disrupt the mutually assured destruction that some people think has actually prevented major conflicts uh-huh. um, between between powerful countries. And so that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. But um, in terms of the Space Force, um, I think the biggest criticism of, of Space Force is that it unnecessarily, unnecessarily militarizes space. Now, uh-huh. it's not militarizing space in the sense that we're like putting soldiers in space. Um, yeah, it's more about develop. Well, I don't think that's even a part of the, I, I think that maybe who knows what yeah. Trump, th- who knows what Trump thinks, but, uh-huh. but, um, the actual people like who would put a space force into practice yeah. would be thinking about the like scientists and engineers who would be helping to protect our satellites, mm-hmm. um, and ensure that like any like surveillance or, um, kind of. Um, it's it's more of like a counterintelligence thing right. and protecting our satellites than like putting soldiers or, or weapons into space. Uh-huh. And the thing is, the Air Force already does that stuff. Like like th- th- these are operations that are extraordinarily important, but they're already well integrated into our current military apparatus. Yeah. Um. And so I think that those things are being taken care of if, if you want to yeah. beef up that like capability then do it but the best way to do it is through the current apparatuses yeah. that exist and that you know i don't know if you call it a new space race of of the militarization of space or the defense or counter defense or offensive surveillance but the other sort of front on this new technological era is like artificial intelligence and you know cyber attacks and stuff mm-hmm. it wasn't widely publicized uh, or, or talked about but when we had that confrontation with Iran, and we're, you know, still it still are, but they had did like a cyber attack that that right. that, that uh, you know disabled some of their you know functioning. I, I don't know specifically what it was, but it seems like you know I hear like China is is rapidly developing their artificial intelligence uh, capabilities, and 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 we might be a little bit behind on mm-hmm. that. And it seems like you know every, if everything going on technology from cars to you know monitoring our uh our utilities it seems like that would be like devastating so yeah. um is that a is that an either or situation too is it like should we should we is it is it like okay let's take our focus away from space and exploring the stars and try to get the mars and, and focus on how do we develop artificial intelligence and cyber defenses and, and stuff like so that so if we're talking is that an either or? Or can you do that the same thing? If we're talking national defense, you've got to do all of it. Um, and I think that defense in space is important, and it should be an important part of our our defense strategy. Um, however, those capabilities are already in place, 
and that a the development of a space force and turning it into a national defense priority would militarize and and kind of tarnish something that could be a unifying hopeful industry rather than a militarized one right um which is a little bit ironic because right, right now um the primary people building things to send us into space are defense contractors. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the, there's, and there's, there's always been that fundamental like disparity in space exploration from the beginning. We went to the moon in the midst of the cold war. Mm-hmm. National defense has always, always yeah. had this kind of paradoxical relationship with space exploration. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's true today as well, but I think that, um, our national defense priorities are out of whack. Um, I think that the um, stuff that you were just talking about with artificial intelligence and and um, cybersecurity are one of the biggest fronts that we have, and that should be one place where we are focusing most of our attention for national defense. The other side, and the military um, has said this, has come out and stated this outright, that one of our national defense priorities should be climate change. and. This is where I think that spaceflight, both robotic spaceflight and human spaceflight, can actually really, really help us in addressing problems here at home. So I want to I want to talk about uh, sort of the politicis the politicization of science in in a little bit. It's the last thing I want to talk about because I think just even the you know the, the Democratic debates, uh, you know, they asked just a sh- I think one word answer, what do you think is the biggest threat to national security? And almost half of them said climate change. Right. But I think if, if you, you know, if you, if you go to a, if there was like a Republican debate, uh, that would definitely not be brought up. And even the, you know, even some of the claims that are made are, are, are questioned. So I want to, I want to finish the podcast talking about that, that dynamic before, uh, getting there though, I want to, uh, Talk about how, you know, these contractors and uh, the fact that the reason we did major investments into into space exploration was because of national defense and because of the political sort of push at the time. And, and it seems like that sort of exploration, if it's from the government, is entirely dependent on, you know, political will, political viability. And and so when we're talking about the idea of public-private partnerships, which already exists with, you know, NASA, uh, government funding and contracting out through private things, uh, but we're also starting to see now private companies like SpaceX uh, being able to um, hold, hold their own with, with some of these things. So... And, and there's, a, there's a proposal, uh, the, the, the reason... Uh, Foundation recently put out a, a, a study basically proposing that the shift, the public-private pro- public partnership be shifted in the, in the sense that NASA restricts itself to research and, and development. And, and it would make that research sort of open and that the, that the bulk of the exploration and, the, and developing the, the tools to do that would be private companies. Um, is that the future of uh, of space exploration? Would that 
would, would basically handing the baton off to, to private market competition to, to explore space, is that the most sustainable way to reach these, these goals, which would have the benefits that you've been talking about? Yeah, so I actually think that um, the question of is science a priority and um, how do you actually accomplish space exploration are actually related. Um, because actually getting to space is an extraordinarily complicated thing. Not technologically. We have the technology. It's a complicated thing politically. And so what we have to think about is what are the goals of the various people that can actually get us into space? What are their incentives? And how are those changing or how should they change? When you look at the reasons why we have gone to space and the reasons we currently go to space, um, science is only a very small part of it. Basically, in order to get something into space, you need to get four groups on board. You need the president, you need NASA, you need Congress, and you need contractors. And they all have different reasons for promoting um, space exploration. And sometimes they conflict. So right now, Trump and Pence have been pushing for like going, going to the moon or sometimes going to Mars, uh. Uh, although they seem to have shifted focus towards the moon. The reason they're doing that is not totally clear, um, but my assumption is that a president pushes for space exploration because of prestige. Uh -huh. um, that they want to say that they accomplished something great. And mm -hmm. space exploration is a very visible way to do that. Yeah. Now, in order to um, actually get that done, they need to get a budget through Congress. And Congress has a very different priority when it comes to space exploration. They haven't even been able to do that. <laughs> no. Without that. No. And, 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 and the reason is Congress doesn't care about the prestige of the executive branch. Yeah. They care about jobs. Mm -hmm. That's their fundamental priority. And what you see in, um, in Congress is deep, deep relations with the other party that you need to get on board, which are the contractors who ultimately want money. Yeah. And so what you see happening is a deep relationship between members of Congress who live in states with aerospace manufacturing and defense contractors. When you look at um, senators from, from Alabama, uh -huh. you see a large portion of their funding, or, or Texas even, a large portion of their funding comes from aerospace contractors. And NASA... NASA's in kind of a weird limbo in between those two groups because NASA really wants clear goals that they can accomplish and they want funding to accomplish those goals. Yeah. And usually NASA wants scientific goals. They want to figure out if there's life on Mars. Um, and so these eventually come into conflict and you've, you've seen this a lot between um, even Trump and Pence and a Republican Congress. Trump and Pence have made the priority going to the moon. And they want to do so with something called the Deep Space Gateway. A, ba basically another um, um, space station orbiting the moon. And they want to get stuff through Congress. 
well, progress towards going to the moon has been slow. They're building the um, space launch system, the SLS, and it's been taking years. It's been going over, over time and over budget massively. Boeing is the primary contractor on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you have here is a situation where Boeing is getting a ton of money. It is costing about $2 billion per year in order to get the SLS built. Um, so far, they have spent close to, um, I believe, $16 billion on this project, which is providing jobs for people in these congressional districts, mm-hmm. and it's giving money to these aerospace contractors. Their incentives... So basically, it's, it's very inefficient, what's, yes. what's happening now. Yeah. So, so, um, so what's, the, what's the shift? What would you recommend to... So the reason reason it's inefficient is because um, these contractors and Congress are sort of the the gateway to getting things into space. And because their priorities are getting more money and getting more jobs, their incentives are not to to complete projects. The way contracting has worked going back into into World War II even and the Apollo era is that during those time periods, you needed to get stuff built no matter what. And so you had the evolution of something called cost-plus contracting, where they engage with a con- where the government engages with a contractor, they set a, an initial price for how much they think that it's going to cost, an initial estimate, and if it goes over time or goes over cost, there are mechanisms to give more money to the contractor. What's starting to happen now with companies like SpaceX, something that kind of has roots going all the way back to the Reagan administration, but really didn't get going until um, 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 George W. Bush and the Obama administration, who made it their priority, is cultivating a crop of of, um, commercial launch providers, new companies that can build rockets for cheaper and send them to space. Mm. And the fundamental difference here and the things that can make the incentives better and make things more efficient is moving away from cost plus contracting to fixed price contracting. Basically, instead of telling SpaceX, tell us your estimate for the costs and then we'll give you more if you need it, you come into a contract with SpaceX and they say, we can send something to space for $40 million dollars. And the government gives them $40 million if they complete that mission. Mm -hmm. That's it. So rather than an open-ended kind of uh, blank check to to keep developing this, giving a contract to to complete something specific, and and if you don't do it, you don't do it. And Um, and this has been, like, successfully done with, with, with SpaceX in particular so far. They were contracted this way in order to deliver cargo to the International Space Station, and it spurred the development of um, a rocket family now with Falcon Heavy mm-hmm. that um, is the fraction, is a fraction of the cost of other space launch systems developed under cost plus contracting, even to the point where the SLS might be put on the back burner. So this is where the fundamental um, like conflict between the executive branch and Congress has been mm-hmm. within the last six months. It is becoming increasingly clear that Pence and the executive branch really want to get something to happen in space. And they are becoming increasingly impatient with the progress of SLS. And so 
um, the leader of the Senate appropriate, and, and so they've been talking a lot more about like doing these types of fixed-price commercial contracts. Mm-hmm. Jim Bridenstine, NASA administrator, recently made like a, a kind of intense speech saying if the SLS isn't going to be there on time, they, they want to put something, they want to do mm-hmm. the first major tests of um, moon mission hardware next year, and the SLS isn't even close to being able to launch then. And so Jim Bridenstine came out and said very strongly, if the SLS isn't ready, we're going to launch something on the Falcon Heavy. Interesting. And the leader of the Senate Appropriations Committee is Richard Shelby, a senator from Alabama, where a lot of the manufacturing for the SLS is happening. And they cannot agree on a budget because Shelby really, really does not want Alabama to to lose those those potential jobs and that potential money. And so there's actually like a conflict within the, the Republican Party right now about how to actually get this done. So it's almost like, I mean, it seems to me like it's the same, same sort of problems people have with, you know, pork and yeah. excessive spending that's just politi- for, and we for actually, political reasons. And it's, it's, it's happening here, a microcosm in we actually and recently the space lost world as well. One of our biggest um, defenders against that sort of thing. Um, and John McCain. Yeah, John McCain was one of the biggest fighters against um, like shady practices mm-hmm. in the defense industry and shady relationships between defense contractors and Congress. Um, Boeing um, contributes an enormous amount of money to to members of Congress. Same thing with Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Boeing contributed over $15 million to yeah. um, members of Congress. I mean, taking, taking from that way, if, if, you know, starting with the premise that we had in, you know, t- more, a little bit earlier that these sort of developments can help with climate change, they can help with these new technologies we're seeing, mm-hmm. you, you could also see that, um, you know, that, that mismanagement and, and misprioritizations and pork spending and, as an obstacle to to all the the benefits that you could see, it absolutely is because nobody's selling it as that. Nobody's and, making and that a priority, no and no one's frame. I don't think people are framing it no. like that. Hey, we need to stop this because it's it's preventing, uh, you know, all these other issues. Hey, if if climate change is is so important, if these things, science and, and development through space technology could help that that issue, like hey, that's that's holding up. Uh, National security and it, uh, and it could concern. It could lead to an issue in um, after the next election. I foresee this foresee this being a potential problem if we get a Democratic president, because the Democratic candidates are the only ones who are talking about climate change. But the only ones talking that much about space exploration are Republicans, maybe even if they're be, doing it for, for the wrong reasons. Maybe in this my could mind. be the unifying, the unifying force behind American <laughs> politics that well, everyone's looking for. The last <laughs> few years have been any indication. I have a pretty pessimistic <laughs> outlook on that. Well, because let's, like, like, like if a Democratic president gets elected, they could put all the space stuff that the Trump administration has been prioritizing on the back burner right. purely because it was a Trump administration thing, which and I think would be the wrong move. And that seems like, for, going back to our last podcast, one of the things we talked about is one of the problems is that every administration has got different priorities and that kind of changes the, you know, it doesn't allow for consistent 
sustainable uh, investment into space exploration exactly. and stuff. Uh, let's finish with topic of just kind of more broadly uh, about this just state of reason and science in our society today. It seems like you know the rise in populism and, and both sides is is fueled a lot on emotion, uh, less that less so than than reason. Um, I think uh, you know vehicles of social media allow it to be very, very easy to spread you know non scientifically valid ideas. We have the politis- politicization of of science, whether we're talking about climate change or vaccinations or mental health treatment and gender issues. It's like, it's like even even talking about climate change, which should be a scientific thing, it's very politicized. And yeah. and and I, I was just uh, in San Francisco last week, uh, hung out with some people, uh, some folks who have a very drastic view of climate change. I think a lot of the you know a lot of the more uh, left leaning progressives have this drastic view which is that maybe even within a couple decades, or at least with our lifetimes, we have like a cataclysmic risk of like, you know, devastating effects on the human population. And and if that's true, that's like very alarming and needs yeah. to be something you know, we need to respond to. It. But if you look at, you know, conservatives, they're very skeptical of that. And I don't think, you know, the mainstream conservatives aren't are denying that this effect is happening, but I think the question is how how drastic is it? Is it being over overly politicized and overly uh, dramatized for political purposes uh, for the left? So, um, I don't know. Do you think we have a crisis of scientific reasoning and, and thought here? Do you think it's a major problem? Um, I think it's one of the biggest problems facing our country right now. I think that the injection of politics into science is um, one of the most tragic things that we've seen. And um, I, I don't know where exactly the blame lies. I don't think it's on any particular party. Um, but I do think that, like, it has spilled over into into a general skepticism of, of, of science. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not sure that this was even politicized to begin with, but I think because of, of the reaction to it, I think the reaction to it is more what made it politicized than anything else. Um, and I think that has to do with... Um, the reaction to, like, the to, climate change? Yeah, to, to, to people sounding the, the alarm, the very real alarm about climate change. Um, the reactions to that, I think, I, I think politicized it. You mean by both sides or, or just one? I think particularly the reactions against it. Mm-hmm. And I, like, it, it's clear that those were not necessarily motivated by genuine skepticism for the most part. Mm-hmm. Now, the reactions to the reactions have been equally politicizing. Um, you mean the reaction by left to the reaction right. by the right? Right. And and then it starts to to spiral into the current state that it's in. Yeah. I also think that it probably has um other contributing factors and and I don't I don't know enough about this to say anything definitively. But I think it has to do with um I think it's related to the kind of general skepticism of academics and um, education, and there has been a sort of anti-intellectual movement in the United States recently that is is pretty concerning to me. Um, 
And I think it's a little bit puzzling because during the Cold War, you had this push towards, towards STEM and science, mm-hmm. those very sort of national defense-oriented. And so um, you had political leaders on the right pushing for scientific education. Mm-hmm. And it seems to have sort of flipped. And I think that it's easy to theorize about this stuff. Yeah. But there were, like, studies funded by interested industries, like the energy sector, um, that ca- cast skepticism on, on scientific consensus. Yeah. And so, I, I like, I think that it's more complicated than that. Yeah. I, I think that there's other factors that people don't talk much about. But I don't think that it, it is... I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting because, like, you know, I think, I think there's there's one sense that the experts, you know, have failed in a lot of ways. Of you know, if you look at the the Iraq War, you look at the you know financial crisis uh, in the in the in 2000s. Uh, you know, there's kind of like a, a skepticism of the of the experts there. Yeah, and. Um, and I think uh, academia has a perception that it is, you know, dominated by liberals. Yeah. And, and so what's what's coming out of that? You know, they, they they tell they tell us this drastic thing about climate change, and then oh by the way, um, the way to solve it is with progressive policies. And you know the Green New Deal. Yeah. It's like okay, that's great, but like, why is a jobs guarantee a part of this? You know, why is right. why is shutting down nuclear energy a part a part of this? If it is such a drastic, immediate thing, you know, why why not narrow it down to where it, you could have collaboration with it? And I think that in terms of climate change, that that it, it just it just becomes a mess. And then I think yeah. I think Donald Trump. Um, is is like celebrated for kind of like, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, owning the libs or like, hey, you, you, being able to stand up for the people who feel slighted and and by the elites and by the intellectuals, yeah. the intellectuals, you know, they look down their noses at at people in in middle America and, and, and Trump voters and 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 I don't know how See, you break I, I, I don't know how you break that apart. It, even if if you don't think they do, I think that's the perception. Yeah, it is the and perception. That, and then you have a guy like Trump who makes jokes like, "Oh, it's snowing today, ha ha!" Like, what about your climate change people? Mm-hmm. And then, and I don't know if he's like serious, but he's definitely trying to provoke a reaction of like, "Ha ha, yeah!" And it's kind of like, it, you know, just yeah. So it, it, think, it doesn't make for reasoned uh, and 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 informed. I think there's a couple and, issues and at play here. There, there, there's like a. There's something I've noticed. Um, I have recently like come across several issues like this where I'm genuinely confused by by, by them. Um, and in conversations with people, what I realized is the reason that I'm genuinely confused as to why there is such a reaction against this or that is because I don't watch <laughs> um, cable news. Right. And I think that there are very powerful structures that are invested in establishing certain narratives and can do so through the power of of cable news. 
I actually think that that is a legitimately um, worrying thing, that a lot of these narratives make no sense. Mm -hmm. The idea that, that academics are elites who look down on, on people is, is patently absurd. Um, academics don't get paid that much money. Mm -hmm. um, they are not like a financial elite. And a, a lot of times they are working at publicly funded state universities um, and have deep relationships with their communities. But I think, you know, you talk about you don't have to be rich and wealthy to be elite. I mean, even even the being highly educated um, can give you the perception that, oh, a Trump voter that doesn't have the same vocabulary or something uh, as they do is, is immediately dismissed as like not knowing what the heck they're talking about and they're and they're and their experience isn't as as valid as yeah, someone right. who's on the coast that that's 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 gone to an elite Ivy League whatever good university and there's a you know there's right. a status there's a status thing that's that's attached to that and and so there's a lot to be done in terms of of communication mm -hmm. like uh, communication can certainly be improved but the um the counter message the like a narrative that they are elites that you shouldn't listen to is I think a much more powerful force than the like lack of of communication on behalf of the academics. Um, the academics are are happy to communicate. You can go to a college and, and go to a talk, like a publicly funded university. You can go and and talk to these people and mm -hmm. and listen to their re research. They have events all the time, um, and they want people to understand their work. Mm -hmm. But the, do they want, the, 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 they, the narrative that they are academics that don't want to communicate this stuff or, or struggle to communicate this stuff is is just wrong. It's that yeah. they, they aren't they aren't given um, the chance to communicate these things. Yeah, and, and I don't, the people who like want, really really want to support this narrative that they are elite have all the chances in the world to voice that narrative. Yeah, but I, I think at the same at the same time. Are they at these at these spaces where they're where they're dispensing their their knowledge? Are they also listening to the concerns of people who maybe don't even have access to those things that aren't that aren't uh, able to make it to those? And how do you? I mean, and I don't think that science itself is is. I think I think the conversation we're having the science gets wrapped up into the the yeah. politics of, of both sides and the cultural wars that we're seeing right now. I think it's a shame that science has gotten wrapped up in these cultural wars, and um, and I don't know. Maybe maybe it's it's how do you how do you how do you communicate science to this population? How do we how do you communicate the concerns of Middle America to? I don't know if it's exchange program. <laughs> I don't know. Well, but it's it's definitely I think one of the biggest uh, you know obstacles that we that we face, and as all the divisions we have, I think this is I emblematic think, of of those. I think the onus for that is on um, the medium, and I think that the the media has a whole lot of influences on it that that mm -hmm. prevent that from being a priority. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's the fundamental issue here. Um, most of these types of narratives that make no sense when they are confronted with reality mm -hmm. are things that people are getting through their news sources. Yeah. Um, and then they get reinforced within like online communities and stuff and through people talking to each other. Yeah. 
and and so I think the primary onus there is on 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 the media. But I I don't think that the the the, the media is not particularly independent. Um, and it's and, change, so, <laughs> and it's changing a lot. Yeah, I mean it's me, media. What is it, you know cable news online? I think you got everyone's in their bubbles. You got you know, as, as much of the influence of Fox News might be on certain people. I think like woke progressive Twitter is just as bad bad of an influence on yeah. on people on the other side. So uh, how do you how do you get objective uh, you know facts about anything, especially science through this time? I don't know. I guess that's it's up to educators. A really tough to, problem to solve. Yeah. yeah well, and and like I, I would this is an, another point where I'm gonna bring up um, Carl Sagan because <laughs> um, I think everyone I, I would encourage everyone to read um, the demon haunted world because Sagan was um, confronting his own issues in his own generation about um, scientific skepticism. There were people um, like wrapped up in paranormal phenomena and, and psychic phenomena that he was trying to encourage skepticism against. And he made some predictions about, about the future if communication like that failed. And I think a lot of his, his predictions have um, come to fruition yeah. and that Sadly. understanding that might be the key to, to, to addressing it. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. Great conversation. Uh, school yeah, starts in a few me. weeks. You got any you got any things you like to do in terms of mental preparation <laughs> back in the classroom? Summer vacations? Yeah, gonna have to relax a lot and <laughs> start reading a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, well, thanks everyone for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. Uh, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Overcast, Google Play, anywhere you listen to your podcast. Thanks.